Once upon a long time ago, I worked as a lifeguard. Yeah, that's right. I worked as a lifeguard. Spent most of my time fighting against natural selection. Welcome to Across the Table, the podcast of Hannibal the Magician. So here I am once more. Welcome back. Glad you're here. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Give me a chance. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. So things are, uh, things are warming up here in Estes Park at the top of the world, working for the, uh, one of the most haunted hotels in the world and doing a nightly seance four nights a week. Uh, next week it's going to be five nights a week, and starting in June it's going to be six nights a week, doing three sessions per evening. I've become very popular. They have renewed my contract. They've asked me to stay on, and I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity. Got my own little theater, got my own little show, which is evolving and improving, and soon it may be a, uh, two shows, two different shows, two different seance performances that I'll be able to deliver um, to to whoever is there, to who to the people that show up. And you never know exactly what you're gonna get or what's gonna what's gonna be coming around the corner. Uh, my goal is to by the end of the summer have three complete uh, three complete sessions that are all completely different and so that the people that want to come back can come back again. Just call me the the clue of uh, <laughs> of modern day historic seance theatrical experiences. Hi, it's Hannibal. I'm having a weird day. I'll go ahead and tell you. I, I woke up this morning in a, in, a, in a funk, in a kind of a down, um, depressed kind of a mode. I walked around the house and looked at the pictures of the people that I love. Um, my children, my grandkids, my, the people that I hold dear in my heart. Some of them don't even know it. Um, but I do. I, I love them still. And I looked at their pictures, and they all live somewhere else, and they all live too far away for me to casually visit or to pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to drop by tomorrow if that's okay and, and, um, and watch the kids grow up. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a tough place to be. Um, I, am, I am not ungrateful for where I am. I worked very, very hard to get to where I am, and I, I am touching people and moving people's lives, and I'm, and I'm proud of the work that I do. But there are days like today when I, uh, I, I take, a, take an inventory of myself and look at the things that, uh, that I did wrong and the choices that I made that maybe weren't necessarily even the wrong choices, but they, they affected other people negatively. And I, I regret that anything that I do might hurt someone. But that's it's part of being human, right? No matter how careful we are, we are going to hurt someone. And the best we can do is apologize and try to live our lives forward in a better way from that point on. And try not to have too many days like today where you, where you look back and you just count up your regrets. Anyway, I thought I'd tell you a, a, a story that I've been kind of putting off. It's there and it's something that comes up in my... Well, it comes up on days like today. There are times in our lives, there are people that we look up to and respect and love who will... In the, in the moments of what they're thinking, we'll, we'll say something that can cut us very deeply, and it could affect the rest of our entire lives. And, 
And and one of the story I'm going to tell you about is one of those times, one of those one of those moments when I had to really put a, a lens to myself and go, all right, is that how people really see me? Is this is how is this how I am seen in the entire world? And I I still don't know. I mean, I, I saw a, a speaker <clears throat> a day or two ago, and in the midst of, of what he was saying, he, he unapologetically said, "There's just going to be people who don't like me, and that's fine. I'm not I'm not doing this to be liked. I'm doing this." For, for the betterment of the people that I'm doing it for. I'm, I'm doing it to make them laugh. I'm doing it to raise their spirits. And some people aren't going to like me for that. And some people aren't going to like me for the, the viewpoint I have or the beliefs that I have or the faith that I have. And I've, I've come to deal with that. Likeability can be a prison. Because if you are caught up in, in a reputation of he's a likable guy, then, then it's going to take, there's going to come the time when you stumble, when you do something that is unlikable and that, you know, that can tear into your reputation. You can lose friends. You can lose family members all off of a, a bad decision on a bad day or a good decision on a good day that simply is misunderstood or, or hurts someone. And you can, you can lose an awful lot. And life is magic and loss. You get, you get both of those things in uh, sometimes quite massively unequal measure. So here's the story. I had, a, I had and still have a gift of a very deep imagination. Um, even as a child, as a kid, um, one of my greatest joys was, was just writing stories down. And in that era, in that stage of writing things down, I would often include people in my real life, people, you know, that, that I knew every day, and I would make them the hero or the villain or the casual bystander of whatever story I was writing. I would use their names and I would use their attributes and the things that I admired or disliked about them in the stories that I wrote. And those, those were largely supposed to be just for me just because I love to create the stories. And, you know, the, the way things happen, my, my mom came across um, a notebook of the stories that I had written, and uh, unfortunately she opened up randomly and read a story that she thought was true, and it was, uh, it was quite unflattering uh, to a friend of mine. Um, and, you know, it wasn't even really him. I just used the character in the story, but... Uh, Mom thought the story was real, and uh, it, it made her quite angry. And I and I tried my best to explain to her, you know, it's it's fiction. It's just a story. I just I just use this name, and these you know these personality traits because I know this person. This is how I think they would act. And you know, and that was fine, I guess. And she didn't really understand, but uh, it, it, she calmed down about it, and at least you know. <laughs> She didn't call my friend's parents to tell them, you know, the horrible, um, unbelievable things that, had, that uh, their son had done. We, uh, we lived in a little town called Tiga Kay. This was a, a suburb of a suburb of Charlotte, uh, just over the line in South Carolina. My dad was an engineer and an architect, and he worked for a company that helped lay the grid for this, this new city. It was a private community, a gated community. And we were, 
slightly above middle class. We were we weren't well to do, but we we did okay. We did not hurt for anything. Um, and then my dad bought uh, a plot of land uh, in the development, and he designed and built uh, his own house, um, our own house. He made it exactly the way he wanted it to be. And uh, we moved in when I was eight years old, but I still have clear memories of him teaching me how to nail down shingles on the roof of the house. And so I was up on the roof. I had seven, eight years old, nailing down shingles to help my dad build his house and being the most proud person in the world uh, because I was doing that. I had a little apron of nails and a hammer, and I was up there. <sighs> two stories up, nailing <laughs> nailing shingles down to the roof of our house. Anyway, this, this community that we lived in, my dad took up uh, golf and discovered that he loved it very much, and he, he got very good at it, and he won a couple of tournaments later on, you know, amateur tournaments, nothing ever, you know, pro-line, but he had a lot of fun doing it. And, you know, that was his, um, that was his weekend release. He worked very, very hard. Um, during the week, and then he would come home, and on Saturdays and sometimes Sundays, he would go out and he would play golf for a few hours to unwind. And my mom tried to get into it, um, but it wasn't something she enjoyed as much as he did. So after a while, she, you know, she took up her own hobbies. She did her own things. Well, the uh, the friends my dad hung out with, you know, after uh, after a game or a round of golf, would often head back to the clubhouse and hang out in the bar for a while. And my dad started coming home intoxicated. He started coming home a little drunk, and Mom hated that, didn't, didn't care for that at all. And my dad and I had some, some bad confrontations um, during that time, and, uh, and it, it, it diminished him in my eyes as a, you know, as a pre-teenager especially. And um, I spent some time coping with that and trying to deal with that. Well, one night, my dad uh, stayed out later than usual. And so my mother called, and I was, I was there. I was listening to the whole conversation. My mother called the bar up at the clubhouse and asked if he was there. And she was told that he wasn't. And she immediately kind of snapped and went, if he told you to say or to tell me that he wasn't there, tell him that he needs to get on the phone right now and he'd better be home within the next half hour or else, basically, or else. And he came and picked up the phone and said he was sorry and he didn't, he didn't trust himself driving, so that's why he had kind of hung out a little longer trying to sober up a little bit and he was too embarrassed to call and ask her to come get him. So she went and got him and brought him home and it wasn't nice. It wasn't a. It wasn't a pleasant scene. It's not one of the better memories of my childhood. So a couple of days later, uh, Dad came home from work with a uh, with a peace offering, and the peace offering he brought home was a beautiful chocolate and black Chihuahua, long-haired Chihuahua. Just a, I mean, very very tiny dog, very energetic, very loving little dog. Um, and we hadn't we hadn't had a pet since we'd moved uh, to TKK, and um, you know this was nice. And my mom, 
in her own humor in the way that she would do things. Um, she named the dog Whiskey. <laughs> Even as a kid, I thought that was hilarious. Now, I was 11 years old around this time, 11, maybe 12. Um, all these events I remember pretty clearly because I, I wrote them down as my own stories in a notebook that I made sure nobody would find. I still do that, by the way. Anyway, uh, Whiskey was was uh, was a great pet. It was a great dog. I got to walk him a lot and got to play with him a lot. And he was high energy and 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 you know like like Chihuahuas are, but but loved the family. Could tell you that you loved the family. And uh, one week, one afternoon, uh, later on, Whiskey lost his uh, lost his energy. Started just kind of slowly walking around the house, you know, still cuddling and still being loving and still being, you know, him, but he, he didn't have his, his, his spirit. He didn't have his energy. He was very lethargic. He would sigh a lot and he would, he would, uh, he would go and lay down in the corner a while, you know, and, and didn't go out to run in the yard like he used to, um, and scratched a lot, scratched at his neck to the point where he developed a, uh, uh like sores and cuts from scratching so much around his neck and they, you know, it, it was obviously painful and it was obviously, yeah, it, it wasn't, it wasn't good. And so it, it got to the point where one afternoon my mom came home for work and took a look at him and was like, we need to, we need to take him to a vet. There's clearly, there's clearly something wrong. And I, and I think maybe he's developed like a skin rash or something on his neck or something that's, that's messing with his system. So let's, let's go take him and have him looked at. And she called the local vet, and they said that they could see, they could see whiskey in about two hours. They were like, you know, if you don't want to wait in the waiting room, you know, they were only like ten or fifteen minutes away. So you know, come to you know, come come see us in about two hours, and we'll see what we can find. So, she asked me to take him out in the yard and make sure he, you know, used the bathroom and you know and whatever. And we walked out in the yard, and and uh, whiskey just kind of sat at my feet and and whined a little bit. And so I, I got I got some water from the hose, and I thought, well, at least you know we we can clean off the wound on his neck. We can you know we can uh, I, I can make that and clean it up. There's some matted blood in his uh, in his fur, and and you know maybe it'll make him feel better. So I went and got the got the hose and got a got a little washcloth. I was gonna you know do what I could do. And when I looked at the wound on his neck. It was like a cut. It was like a like cut that, that ran around across the back of his neck. And I pulled his fur apart and I and I washed it a little bit and he you know was very touchy about it and whined a little bit about it. And I looked closer into the cut and there was a rubber band around his neck. It was a very thin had no one had noticed it because it had gone into his skin or it had cut into his skin and it just it blended in with the wound and nobody had seen it and i yelled for my mother and she came out the door and i took my pocket knife and i snapped the rubber band cut the rubber band and the moment it came clear of his neck all of his energy came back you could tell that he was feeling he was feeling better and he ran and he drank some water and he ran around the yard and he, he kissed me and he jumped up into my arms and he was all Grateful. There's a rubber band around his neck. 
and for a couple of days, at least, it had been choking him slowly. And so, of course, he didn't have the energy, and of course, he was scratching at his neck, and the wound was getting deeper, and, and, and of course, and the vet would have found it immediately, sure. Um, but apparently nobody else had, had really looked closely at it. They just thought he was getting sick, or that he had a rash or something. But out in the sunlight... And in, in closer examination, I, I saw it, and, and it fixed it. And, and you know, we still took him, took him to the vet and got some, there was some salve, some medicine for, for the wound, and he healed up and lived to be a very, uh, very old dog. Very good dog. Very good companion during the course of my parents' divorce a year or so later. But... Um, but of course, there there was a rubber band around his neck, and, and the natural question was, how did it get there? And my father came home, and we related the whole story to him, and I was I was just relieved. I was just super happy that whiskey was going to be okay. That that we we found the problem, and everything is solved, and everything is good. And uh, and so of course, you know, they asked, um, well, who who put the rubber band around his neck? And the uh, the list of suspects was very small. <laughs> uh, it was me and my sister Pam. And Pam is five years younger than I am, and um, you know, and very emotional, especially then. Um, uh, and I knew I hadn't done it. I mean, I hadn't done it. I had not put the rubber band around his neck. It, it, it just flat out, I knew it hadn't happened. And I certainly wasn't, I, I wasn't going to rat out my sister. You know, it had to be Pam because I didn't do it. That, that, that sentence never crossed my, my mind or my lips. But my dad asked me, did you, did you put the rubber band around Whiskey's neck? And I said, no, I didn't. No, sir, I did not. I didn't do that. Um, I, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, I think I'd know better. And Pam was young, you know. And he asked Pam, did she do it? And Pam said, no, no, sir, I didn't do it. And my father got very serious and looked at the two of us and said, well, clearly one of you is lying to me. Um, and we are not going to leave this room until someone tells me the truth. I don't mind that you did it. I'm very relieved that that, that that is all that it was. And perhaps you were playing and you and you thought, I don't know, rubber band collar or, or whatever. And uh, but, you know, and, and, and the dog's OK. So everything's OK. I just would like to know the truth of who did this. And it, and it makes me what's making me angry is that one of you is, in fact, lying to me. So tell me the truth. And he asked us both again, and we both said no. And he gave us a third opportunity, and he said, after this, there are going to be dire consequences. And we both said no again. And so we both received a, a belted spanking. We both received a, a pretty energetic spanking with a belt. And then he sat us back down again and looked at us and said, I'm going to ask you again, which one of you put the rubber band around Whiskey's neck? 
And we both said no again. And the second whipping uh, was worse than the first. And my mother, after the second one, came into the room, and the four of us sat there, and we got asked again, did you put the rubber band around Whiskey's neck? And I said, no, I didn't. And my father said to me, you understand that there will be there will be these spankings until someone confesses it would be in your best interest if you would just tell me the truth and i told him that i was telling him the truth and my mother stepped in my mother stepped in and said that he didn't she did not want him spanking pam anymore that she was too young and she didn't understand and it was damaging her more mentally than it would damage me. She said, you can do whatever you need to get him to tell the truth, but let's leave her alone. And my father asked her again, and she said, no, she didn't do it. And so I received a whipping myself while she watched. And this one was worse than the other ones. This was bordering on enthusiastic. Um, I got, I got some, some real bruises and welts from the last one. Uh, because the last one was on, <clears throat> was on bare skin. And my father started asking me between between whippings, between blows, like, you know, smack, did you put the rubber band on Whiskey's neck? No, sir. Smack, did you put in, and, you know, to the point where, in my mind, I was telling myself, just, just say yes, so it'll be over. Just tell him, yes, you did it. Just confess. Even though you didn't do it, tell him that you did so that this will stop. And after the third smack um, when I was screaming and crying my sister said I, I did it it was me I'm sorry I, I, I'm sorry. I, I just, I, I was just playing and then I thought I'd get in trouble I, and, I, and, so, and then I forgot and I'm, I'm sorry it was me and she broke down in uh broke down in some in in bad tears just just like really lost it cuz she thought she was going to get beaten the way that I was getting beaten and they consoled her and thanked her for telling the truth and uh she got grounded for i think a week or two but they told her how proud of the, uh, proud of her. <clears throat> they told her how proud of her they were because she did tell the truth. And uh, and that was that. That was the end of uh, that was the end of the story. That was the end of everything. You know, we 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 found the culprit. We found the guilty party. She's already gotten two, you know, she's already gotten two or three, whatever. She's already gotten spanked for it, so 
now it's just you know you're you're grounded you can't go to your friend's house for two weeks and you know you'll have to do chores around here and everything else but you've already gotten a spanking so so you know you you have received your punishment and and that was that and um my dad said that i could go to my room um yeah that you know you can go to your room because they wanted to talk they they wanted to talk between the two of them and I, I stood there in the injustice of it all, and I, um, I said something along the lines of, so I got punished for something that I didn't do, and I don't think that's fair. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm in pain. I'm, I'm, it, it was enough trauma to where I can still feel the horror of it today, you know, many decades later. And it, it pops up in my head all the time. And the one thing that pops up into my head all more often than, than the beating itself, which was horrific, um, and, and the whole, you know, Pam waiting to confess until I was all but bleeding, and she got consoled for her, uh, for her trauma. The thing that sticks with me the most is when I asked my mother about justice, when I asked my mother about the fairness of, of what I had received and what I had gone through, she looked at me for a long time and she said, you lie about so much. You make up so many things. You tell so many stories that it is impossible for me to believe you in anything. So if you are not guilty of this particular incident, I am quite sure you are guilty of something else and you have lied to me about it. So just think about that instead. I might not post this. I love my mother very dearly. I, she's a part of the seance program. I honor her memory every single night in the shows that I do. The same for my father. I talk about what a great man he was and what an honest man he was. And despite his flaws and his scars and everything else that was wrong with the two of them and some of the things I endured, I love them. I don't know where else to go with that. I, uh, I have long since forgiven the actions, though I still don't understand them. And I tried to be a better parent, tried to be a better parent. And I hope I succeeded in some degree. I lie about so much. I tell stories about so many things. I mislead and I misdirect I tell lies for a living now. I tell stories to pay my bills. I create whole other worlds. And I'm successful at it. And I lead people to the truth in the lies that I tell. 
and I lead people into loving themselves more because of the lies that I tell, I show them the truth within themselves. I show them the truth in the world the best that I can in the best way that I know how. So that which I have bled for, I now live for. And I do it on my own. I do it here in my season of solitude, in my honeycomb at the top of the world, in Estes Park at the most haunted hotel in the world. At least the most reputable, the most, perhaps the best well-known. And all the work and all the suffering and all the, the, the fistfuls of straw that I spun into gold led me here. But I didn't, uh, I didn't put the rubber band around the dog's neck. I found it. I, fit, I set him free. I cut him loose. And I told the truth about it. And I paid someone else's price for it. And I'm no savior and I'm no Jesus. And I'm not even what I would call a good man. but I do what I'm good at as hard as I can to the best of my ability and I hope it improves someone else's world. Memories aren't always shining in silver. Sometimes they're handfuls of crap. I hope there's love where you are. Exactly where this road is taking me. I know that I'm exactly right where I'm supposed to be. The journey is long, full of joy and pain. But as long as you're smiling, I'll stay. got nothing left to give other than love but the funny thing about that is love is everything
funny thing about that is love is everything I hope there is love where you are I hope there is love Disappear.